And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Our study in 1 Samuel brings us this morning to chapter 17. And one of the best known, best loved stories in all the Bible. The story of David and Goliath. And guys, while the story is of great value to us historically, because it demonstrates the faithfulness of God in giving victory to a nation that had all but turned its back on him, that's an important lesson to learn, especially if you're an American. Um, but the real blessing, I think, for us is found in the principles that are sprinkled throughout the passage that help us as God's people today face the giants that we face in our lives. These giants take many different forms. But they are all brought down and defeated by the same God who gave his people victory over a literal giant so many centuries ago. So let's just get into it. I'm going to read most of it, and then we'll make application at the end because it's pretty self-explanatory. First of all, we have the conflict. The conflict. Verse 1. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered together at Soko, which belongs to Judah. Verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. Now, as we've already said in our study in 1 Samuel, the Philistines at this time were the perennial enemies of Israel, so much so that they're mentioned 150 times in both 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. They originally migrated from the island of Crete in about 1200 B.C. Amos lets us know that in Amos 9, verse 7. And they settled in the southwest part of Israel along the coast of the Mediterranean, and they occupied five major cities, Ekron, Ashdod, Gath, Eshkelon, and Gaza. And so here we see one of the numerous conflicts between these two nations, although this battle would be reduced to just two combatants. Let's look at them. First, we have the giant from Gath, big boy. Let's see how tall he was, verse 4. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. I'm sure that's very helpful to you. <laughs> a cubit was about 18 inches. A span was the distance between your thumb and your tip of your pinky finger. They actually would use their hands to measure things. Of course, it wasn't a... Uh, a, a standard measurement, so roughly six inches, which means Goliath stood about nine foot six inches tall. You say, come on, nobody is that tall. Well, look, besides the giants mentioned in Scripture, historians like Herodotus, Diodorus, Siculus, Pliny, and others made reference to people that stood over seven cubits tall. In other words, uh, roughly ten and a half feet. Robert Pershing Wadlow was eight feet eleven inches tall when he died on July 15, 1940, at the age of 22. So Goliath was tall, but his height was not unheard of in history, especially since we see here that Goliath came from the city of Gath. And that's significant because in Joshua 11:22 it tells us that the people of Gath were known as the Anakim. The Anakim a race of giants that I believe were demonically engineered. 
We know that the Bible tells us that Goliath and his brothers had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, uh, which says to me these were not ordinary human beings. Something else was going on here. All right, that's his height. How about his armor? Well, verse 5, he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his leg. Let me stop there. So Goliath wore bronze armor. I believe the Philistines entered into the Bronze Age before Israel did. But he had a helmet made up of bronze. It protected his head, but not really his forehead, as we're going to see in a moment. Uh, but his upper body was covered with what was called a coat of bronze mail. Uh, it was basically bronze chain mesh, which they would use. A, a kind of a, a mesh material, but it was made of bronze. It protected the torso, weighed about 126 pounds. And then he had these bronze plates that were attached to his thighs and, and shins uh, to protect himself from getting hit in those areas. One author said... He stood there like a one-man indestructible fortress. You can imagine, this guy was pretty formidable to look at. What about his weapons? Well, it says in verse 6 that he had a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now, other translations translate that sword. Uh, that's probably the correct translation because a javelin and a spear, he had a spear, are very similar. Why would you have two weapons that were basically the same? This was a sword that was strapped between his shoulder blades. You've probably seen this in the movies where they would reach behind him, pull out the sword, be ready to go. That's what it's basically talking about. And uh, it also goes on to say that in verse 7, the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spear head weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. So a little guy carried his shield, went in front of him. Uh, what a weaver's beam looked like, your guess is as good as mine. The commentators don't know either. Uh, I think it's safe to say this was a massive spear, the shaft of which I can't believe was any less than four to five inches in diameter. The tip itself weighed 15 pounds. Okay, so this is a big spear for a big guy. Um, and so that's a look at the giant from Gath. And then in this corner, uh, we have the shepherd boy from Bethlehem. God loves a mismatch. He really does. All right, verse 12. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons. Uh, the man was old and advanced in years in the days of Saul. His three oldest sons uh, had gone to follow Saul in battle, so they had joined the army. And his firstborn was named Eliab, secondborn uh, Aminadab, or Binadab, and the third was Shammah. David was the youngest. Verse 17. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. So in those days, uh, the army didn't provide you food. Your family had to give it to you. To keep you going. So you families would actually have to bring food to their sons in the, in the service. And it uh, was a good idea, by the way, to bring something good for the captain. Okay, in this case, 10 different cheeses. Because look, if you fed the captain good food, maybe you wouldn't stick your boys up in the front lines because you wanted to keep that food coming. So, you know, just made sense. 
Verse 19, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Well, not technically, as we're going to see, but verse 20, So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting for the battle. What does that mean? Well, here's what they would do. They would get up in the morning and they would gather on either side of the valley and they would yell at each other for a while. This was designed to intimidate. All right? They weren't actually fighting. It says they were fighting. They weren't really fighting. They were yelling at each other, okay? And, you know, growling and yelling and kind of trying to intimidate. It wasn't working so well against the Philistines because they had a big guy on their side, okay? So they went out there and they were shouting and yelling. And so, verse 21, then for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brother. So here is our champion David, okay? A teenager from a little village called Bethlehem. He was a keeper of his father's sheep. It seems the only weapon that David brought with him was his sling. That was the weapon of a shepherd. They would use it to fire rocks at predators who were thinking about making one of the sheep lunch, okay? And if you've ever seen one of these slings, think of it, I'll try to describe it to you. A long uh, leather... Um, strand or uh, uh, kind of like a cord in the middle they had like a, a square or rectangular piece of leather sewn onto it and what they would do is they would take the ends of both straps in their hands put a rock in that little pouch and they would begin to swing it and they get this thing going pretty well and then they would let go of one of the strings holding on to the other and that would allow the rock to really fly i mean they got very good at this uh, in fact the men of benjamin were so good they were ambidextrous. They could, they could nail a coffee can at 100 paces, you know, with either hand, basically. But, um, you know, when you're a shepherd, you've got a lot of time on your hands, right? I mean, you know, the sheep are out there grazing. What do you do? So you hone your skill. And I could see David practicing for hours and hours every week, just, you know, taking this thing. And, and they got very good at this. And, of course, if they saw a predator, they would fling this thing in the rock it would do some major damage, all right? So this was the weapon of a shepherd. The, the point I'm making is that David was not a trained warrior like Goliath was. He was just a simple shepherd boy. What David had going for him, slight advantage, God Almighty was on his side, all right? As I think Luther said, one plus God's a majority, okay? So, you know, that brings us to the contest, or what we would say the challenge in verse 8. Then he, Goliath, stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. The Hebrew is very strong. I denounce in the strongest possible terms, uh, you're nothing. You're worth these trash talking, right? You're a girly man. You guys are nothing, okay? Send out your best guy. Let's go for it. Just him and me. Mono we mono is the idea. And give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 16 tells us that Goliath came out uh, morning and evening for 40 days mocking Israel and presenting this challenge. Well, 
One day, as I've just said, David brings supplies to his older brothers. And it says then, verse 23, started talking to them. And uh, there is David's talking. Here comes Goliath out to taunt the armies of Israel. Uh, here comes their champion, Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. He taunted them like he had been for the last 40 days. So David heard his words, basically. Verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the men, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said to David, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give his daughter to him in marriage, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What? shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, well, you know, just like we told you, uh, the king says that, you know, he's going to give him all these goodies if he, anybody who wipes this guy out. Verse 28, Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? You know, big brother, oldest, you know, the young guy gets picked on all the time. David was the youngest. Why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. <laughs> David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? I didn't start this. That big, ugly guy's taunting Israel. Isn't there a cause here? Verse 30. Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. I'll take him on. He's he turned to some other guys. I'll take this guy on. And uh, the words he spoke uh, got back to Saul. And Saul sent for him. Verse 32. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. In other words, there was a time in the past when I was keeping my dad's sheep, when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock. I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it, when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So very, you know, wow. The king, afraid to fight this guy, but sending a teenager, you go ahead and hope it works out for you. <laughs> that kind of thing, okay? So we've seen the conflict, the combatants. We've seen the contest or the challenge that uh, Goliath issued to the men of Israel. How about the conquest? The conquest. Verse 38. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a, with a coat of mail. And David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. 
And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these. I have not tested them. David says, I'm not used to this stuff. He got me all dressed up like a soldier, all this stuff on me. I can't even move. Okay, so David took all that stuff off, verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? David's got his staff in his hand, a big stick. And, uh, you know, Goliath is incensed. He's, uh, he's feeling disrespected. You send a kid to fight with me? Okay. Am I a dog? You come at me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gut. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, with spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And so it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. He inflicted a mortal wound upon him with the stone, but there was no sword in David's hand to finish him off. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut his head off with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'arim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. So the Philistines were running back to their hometowns as fast as they could run. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. All right. There you have the story of David and Goliath. And I never get tired of reading it. It's just, just the, uh, the drama and the excitement comes right off the page. All right, True story about real people. Make that point. True story about real people. And while it's an exciting story to read, what can we take from it that will help us live as children of God today? I mean, didn't Paul tell us that the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning? What can we learn from this story? What practical principles can we glean that will help us face the giants in our lives? Well, the first principle I see is very basic, but we have to, we have to start there. And that is that challenges are a normal part of life. Challenges are a normal part of life. Job's friend Eliphaz 
had it right when he said, man is born to adversity as surely as the sparks of a fire fly upward. Or, put it another way, the only better roses you're ever going to experience in life is the one they plant on top of you when you're buried. People say, oh, life's like a, I want my life to be like a better roses. Well, it will be eventually. Uh, just that the better roses will be on top of you. Uh, look, the bottom line is life is hard. But God is what? Good. Life is hard, but God is good. So again, the first thing the story of David and Goliath teaches us is that life is full of challenges. Listen, challenges that stand in front of us to block us from moving forward. Challenges that often go way beyond our strength to overcome. And if you're a Christian here this morning, and I hope all you are, but if, if you're a Christian here this morning, they are obstacles that stand between you and God to keep you from being all God wants you to be and to keep you from doing all God has called you to do. Remember what it says in verse 4 about Goliath. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath. The Hebrew word translated champion literally means a man of the in-between or the man that stands between. Guys, listen, Goliath was literally Satan's champion who was standing between David and God's will for his life. He said, what do you mean? Well, God had already anointed David to be the next king of Israel. He had already anointed David to be the next king of Israel. Goliath was determined to kill David. I'm going to say Goliath knew that David was chosen to be the next king. But Goliath was determined to kill David, which would have killed God's plan for David's life, obviously. Listen, symbolically, Goliath represents any giant obstacle, problem, or enemy that stands in our way, kind of like an invincible fortress, to stop us from moving forward into all that God has for our lives. Again, these Goliaths take many different forms. It could be a physical giant, we'll say, like cancer. A lot of folks battling cancer these days. Cancer becomes a giant. It stands in front of you. It's terrifying. It kind of immobilizes you. You can't plan for the future because you don't know if you're going to have much of a future. So a disease like cancer can, can be like a Goliath that will stand in the way of keeping you from moving forward and achieving all that God has for your life. The giant standing in your way this morning might be a substance problem. Something like alcohol, cocaine, prescription painkillers, cigarettes, or some other addiction, maybe like pornography or gambling or something else. There's a lot of people today who are fighting these giants, and it's gotten a hold of them. This enemy has stood in their way and is keeping them from achieving or being all God has called them to be. Sometimes these giants take the form of emotional problems or pain. Things like depression. So a lot of Christians who are, a lot of people in our nation fighting depression. In fact, I read a, uh, an article yesterday about how I think one-third of the people on antidepressants, doctors acknowledge, probably don't need to be on them. So why are they giving them to these folks? They don't know what else to do. They don't know what else to do. People are depressed in greater numbers today than ever before. So what do you do? Well, I don't know what to do for them. I give them medication. We are a, a culture. I'm not saying that sometimes people don't need powerful medicines to maybe balance out some chemical issues in their brain. I'm not saying that. I'm not a doctor. I'm just saying we have, we have become a culture, and the church is not any different. So that Christians really running to God to get 
uh, help and coming to him and, and praying about this, too often it's just easier to run to a doctor to get medication. Depression's a big one. A Goliath is standing in many people's way, keeping them from going forward. Other things that uh, paralyze people like fear. You know, it says here the men of Israel were paralyzed with fear at the size and strength of the enemy. There are those who are paralyzed by fear of whatever it is that stands before them that they're trying to battle. It's terrifying. They just can't, you know, they just can't get past it. And I, I think of a lot of the singles that I've talked to who are dealing with loneliness, profound loneliness to the point where for some it has them paralyzed. They can't go forward. They're just so consumed with the idea of, of having a wife or a husband that the devil is using that desire, a legitimate desire, but when it becomes an obsession, now it becomes something counterproductive. And I've seen many people who have been paralyzed, stopped in their tracks by profound loss. So somebody they love very deeply has been taken from them, a husband, wife, a child, or somebody very close to them. And they're trying to move forward. They're trying to get past it. But as of right now, they haven't been able to. Look, again, life is full of these giants. And maybe you've tried your best over the years to fight against them, you know? Time and time again, fighting, fighting, trying to have victory, only to be de defeated over and over again until this morning, honestly, you have no more strength left. You have no strength left. You are completely exhausted, completely defeated, and you feel like, I'm just going to give up. What's the hope? What's the point? I have no hope. Can I just say this? You're in a better place this morning if you're feeling that way than you realize. Because Paul the Apostle said, when we are weak, we are what? Strong. Oftentimes, God will let us wrestle with something like alcoholism or drug abuse or something else. Wrestle with it, wrestle with it in our own strength because we think we can beat it. And eventually, you know, we just get so frustrated, so worn out, we, we, we're broken. And we come to him and say, Lord, I can't do it. I, I, can't, I can't do it. And God is saying, I know you can't do it. And that's what I've been waiting for to hear you acknowledge that. See, if I was to give you victory while you were trying so hard, you think you did it. You would tell everybody that you were the one because of your hard work, determination, you gained the victory. And that would be wrong. I want to get the glory for the work I do. So I will let a person come to the end of themselves until they have no more options left, no more strength left, and they cry out to me in desperation, and then I work. I've had more than a few people tell me just today in our prayer time this morning before service, we were praying for those who were in bondage to alcohol and drugs and so on. And he said, you know, I was a deep alcoholic for many years. And I tried over the years to be free of it, but I just couldn't. He says, and then one day I, I came to Christ and I said, God, I, I can't do this. I can't have victory over this. Lord, I need your strength. You have to do it. He said, I'm not kidding you. I'm not. This is the honest truth. It was like God threw a switch, and, and the desire was completely gone. I haven't had a drink since. My own uncle said the very same thing. I know what kind of alcoholic he was. Some of you knew my uncle Art. He was a falling-down alcoholic. You can't believe how it had a hold of his life. And he got saved, and he told me one day he knelt by his bed in tears and said, God, I can't do it. It has, it has such a hold on me, I can't be free of it. And God touched my life right there, he said, and I stood up a free man. He didn't have a drink the rest of his life. We're talking about a supernatural thing. I'm not saying work harder, try harder. 
I'm saying give up and let God. Rely on his strength. You see, Goliath represents, again, the obstacles, the problems, and the adversities we face in life. What does David represent? He represents all of us who are children of God. You know, weak, insignificant, ordinary, no match. David was no match for Goliath. Like, we're no match for the giants in our lives. And yet David did experience a glorious victory over Goliath. What was the secret of his victory? You say, well, God. Yes, thank you. It was definitely God. But what principles did David cling to that allowed God to work in his life in such a powerful way that eventually he was able to bring down a giant, yes, by God's grace and strength. But guys, it didn't just start here. As we're going to see next week, God began to cultivate in David a life of faith long before he had a giant stand before him. Our walk is a walk of faith where God is trying to build our faith. He doesn't bring the Goliath across our path early on, at least not unless you brought him into your Christian faith, like the alcoholism or drug abuse. He causes us to work up to some of these things that are giants, things that he really wants us to trust him for that go way beyond us. David was that kind of man. And after he defeated Goliath, that's not where it ended. That was really the beginning in a lot of ways because he went on to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, military king that Israel had ever seen. Under David, they conquered most of the land that God promised Joshua back in Joshua chapter 1. David brought them to the height of their military strength, Solomon to the zenith of their material wealth. But David was the guy who was a man after God's heart, and he fought in the power of the Spirit, and God gave him incredible victories. We'll talk more about that next week as we look at these principles. Too many, too important to get into right now. But let me just tell you this. As we look at the principles for victory next week, this morning, let me give you one more of these kind of foundational principles that we have been looking at. The first one is challenges are a normal part of life, okay? And number two, listen, challenges are a way for God to demonstrate his power. Look at verse 46. David is again talking to Goliath. He said, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Listen, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Why does God allow the giants to stand in our way? Because when he brings them down, because of our faith and trust in him, the world knows that there is a God in heaven and he answers the prayers of his people. Didn't Jesus say, let your light so shine that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven? Guys, we have to understand something. When, when Christians go through severe trials and adversities, so often the temptation is to say, God has abandoned me. God doesn't love me. When just the opposite is true. He's answering your prayers when you've asked him, Lord, use me. And God is saying, well, this is how I'm going to use you. I'm going to put you up against such great obstacles and enemies that go way beyond your ability so that when I work, you're going to be able to tell the world, all the people closest to you who knew what you were going through, who knew you were a falling down alcoholic or a drug addict, and you couldn't be free, and suddenly you gave your heart to Christ, you came to me, and I've delivered you completely. There's more than one Calvary pastor, I'll tell you, who was a drug pusher, uh, a drug user, uh, an alcoholic, that their lives were completely 
written off by their families, they were gone, totally gone. Mike McIntosh, pastor of Horizon Christian Fellowship, you should read his testimony. Everybody gave up on Mike. They thought he was a... His brain was so fried, they thought he'll never be in his right mind again. He gets saved. They say, if you want to come back to the prayer room on, at Calvary Chapel one evening and pray, it will pray with you. If you want prayer, come back. And uh, Mike went back there. The elders laid hands on him. And Mike said, I felt like an electrical shock shot through my body. Instantly, God repaired all the years of dropping acid. He gave, put me back in my right mind. And today, Mike is the pastor of one of the largest churches in America. Our God can bring down giants. Now, let me end with this, guys. We are looking at a giant facing us this morning as a church. We have been looking at buying a building. You know that. And after meeting with the bankers, they have let us know that we don't have the money, okay, for the down payment. They were very nice about it, but they, that was basically the gist of the meeting, okay? And I, as I was driving away from the meeting, I honestly didn't have a shred of depression or discouragement. I had an incredible peace. As God reminded me, what are you teaching on this Sunday? David and Goliath. Well, this down payment is your Goliath. And he reminded me that 11 years earlier, somebody had come to me and said, look, I'd like to see your teaching go on the radio. Radio. He says, yeah, I know a guy from Salem Broadcasting. Would you meet with him and just discuss possibly getting on the radio? I said, well, that's a lot of money. We're a small church. We don't have that kind of money to get on the radio. Well, would you be open to talking? I said, yeah, I'm open to anything. Okay, so he set up the meeting, and um, they had, and I've told the story. Most of you have heard it, but he set up the meeting. I went and talked to this gentleman from Salem Broadcasting. They had one slot left, 15 minutes, Tuesday through Friday. Price tag, 32000 for the year. 32000 for the year. Okay, well, uh, let's pray. I went home, and uh, we talked to the pastors, and we began to pray. We never asked the church for any money. Let me just say this to you. We will never do a fundraiser here at Calvary Chapel. Pastor Mike and I will never show up at your door one day and ask you to make a pledge. Why is that? Because if I ask you guys to make a pledge, every week I'm going to be trusting in you to fulfill that pledge and not in my God. My God... The earth is his and the fullness thereof. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. I'm going to go hat in hand, begging people for money, turning God into a pauper? That dishonors God. God is a very big God. Where he guides, he provides. I will let you know a need maybe, but I will, I'm not even going to tell you how much the bankers said we had to have. God knows. I'm just throwing this out to you because I want you to know our God is a big God. This building, it's immaterial. It's immaterial. It's all about God getting the glory for a great work he's going to do. So the radio, right? So we just went home and started praying. Three days later, the Monday morning, I got the mail. In the mail was an envelope from a couple that used to, used to come to our church years ago, had moved to England. They knew nothing about the radio. Opened up the envelope, there's a check for $30,000. I guess this is a sign from God. You know, great man of faith. I guess this is God, Okay. <laughs> Based on that, we took a step in faith and got on the radio. Eventually, we went from 15 minutes, four days a week, to a half hour, five days a week. And so as we expanded our, you know, our program time, of course, the, the money at every month expanded as well. The bill became larger. Uh, but God always provided. That was in 04 we started. 
then everything was going pretty good until 08 when the economy crashed. People lost their jobs. A lot of the giving dried up, right? And so now we're looking at this deal where we, we're dwindling in our savings account. And when the pastors and I talked. It's like, you know, all right, what do we do? Well, let's pray and see what, you know, let's not bail right away. Let's trust God. Let's see what he wants to do. So we started praying about it and praying about it. And every week, you know, every month it was dwindling more and more. And the, point, the time came that, you know, I said, Lord, we trust you. Maybe this radio thing was only a season, and that's great. If it was just a season, we'll move on. But, Lord, I, we got about two weeks before we got to make a decision. I mean, I, I got to know, I got to be a good uh, steward of your money. Uh, if you're not in this because you're drying things up, then, Lord, you know, I think about two more weeks, and then we need an answer during that time. And if not, we'll just assume it's your will that we get off the uh, radio. About a week went by, and again, I got the mail and opened the mail, and there was a check from, I forgot who it was. Somebody We never asked anybody for any money. Nobody knew what was going on. It was just the elders and I praying. Got a check in the mail, $30,000 from a different family. Didn't know what was going on, but, you know, God put it on their hearts to give us a check for thirty grand. Another week goes by, we get a check for another thirty grand. So that covered another year of radio, roughly. The point I'm making is these are not God turning his back on us. These are tests. When God puts our back against the wall as a church or you as an individual, what do you do? Run to the bank? Get a loan? Put it on the credit card? run to this one, that one, do something not so upright? Well, I have to. Really? Don't you understand our Christian lives are all about God testing us, building our faith, so that when he works, he gets all the glory? This building is a test. From, I don't know if God wants us to have the building. We've looked at a lot of buildings over the years, and I've never felt about any of them the way I feel about this one. I feel like God is in this. Now, I only share that with you to pray, okay, just to pray and see what God's going to do. I, our prayer has also been, Lord, this is not of you. Please, let somebody buy it out from underneath us, and we'll just move on and praise you because I'm, I'm not really worried about the building. It's not really the issue. The issue is, Lord, if you want to give us this building, this is a Goliath that we have to look to you to bring down, bring the money, and whatever. And, Lord, when you do that, if that's your will, how incredible would that be to everybody in our church who sees you working a miracle and providing something we couldn't afford? How is that going to build their faith for their individual lives and families and financial matters and so on? This is all about God receiving glory. Please, see it in the bigger context. It's not about Calvary Oak Grove getting a building. We haven't had a building for 35 years. I think we can, can continue on, okay? Sure, it would be nice. Sure, the sound team would be grateful. Because <laughs> they're the guys dragging all this equipment out. God bless them. In fact, actually, I'm all honest, I've actually prayed, Lord, be merciful to the sound team and give us a building. <laughs> Honestly, I see these guys busting their humps, and I'm thinking, Lord, these guys, give us a building just to bless them. So guys, pray with us. Let's see what our God's going to do. Remember the adventure in faith that Jonathan took early on in 1 Samuel? He said, you know, maybe God wants to work today. And maybe he wants to use us to do it, him and his armor bearer. Hey, let's go and just take a step in faith. That's what we're doing.
We're taking a step in faith and seeing if our God's going to want to do a work. And you'll know all about it soon. So we'll see what he does, all right? So may God get the glory for the great things he does and will do. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you, Lord, that all of our Christian life is really not about you, you know, um, you, you know I don't know, Lord, just sometimes we, we think it's, you know, all these trials and uh, these needs that we have that we can't meet, the mortgage and putting food on the table at times. And sometimes we're prone to think you've abandoned us, you don't really love us. And all the while you're saying, no, I love you. I never, will never abandon you. I'm trying to, to give you lessons in faith, that your faith will grow, that when I provide, your faith is strengthened. You'll be a witness to others that I haven't left my throne. I'm still on the throne. I will provide what you need. So, Lord, thank you. We just seek for you to teach us great lessons in faith. And uh, we just want to be used by you more and more. So, Lord, we thank you. Father, we just give you this uh, Goliath that our church is looking at. Lord, just we give it to you, Lord. And just whoever here this morning is facing a Goliath in their own life, whether it be alcohol or drugs or, or depression or something, pornography, that, Lord, you will give them grace to keep their eyes on you. And that, Lord, you will bring this giant down. You are the giant killer, Lord. You're the giant killer. We can't bring giants down, but we serve a God who certainly can. We look to you, Lord. We thank you for the work you're going to do. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.